In the 1920s, two very eccentric brothers living on the island of Grand Manan became internationally famous as the mysterious and enigmatic Dark Harbor Hermits. Hundreds of tourists from the United States and even faraway Europe came to visit them in their homemade shacks on the beaches of the strange and isolated place known as Dark Harbor, where the hermits would entertain the tourists with their art, their poems, and their songs. You're listening to Backyard History, the hidden stories that happened in your own backyard, the podcast version of the weekly history column running in newspapers across the Maritimes, with your host and author... Andrew McLean. When the fog rolls in on the chilly breeze and the sun goes down in the west, the moan of the wind through the shivering trees plants a thrill of fear in one's breast. But the flaming blush of the rising sun, or the treetops of God's arbor, restores the perfection of the thing undone by the shadows of Dark Harbor. In 1949, more than a decade after they passed away, the Telegraph Journal wistfully recalled the Dark Harbor hermits, describing them as, Probably the most cheerful recluses in history. Those who knew William and Lewis best claimed they weren't hermits at all, at heart, but incurable practical jokers who, for years, chuckled at themselves over the impressions they made with their strange clothes and stranger antics. They enjoyed putting on a show, and it was a good show. While their real names were indeed William and Lewis, everyone knew them as Darby and Lucy. In 1937, reporter Chester Allen Dixon visited the Dark Harbor Hermits to write a profile on the enigmatic duo. Lucy and Darby are known in New York, London, Paris, and Rome as the Dark Harbor Hermits. Yet, comparatively few people in Canada have heard of the Grand Manan Anchorites. The Hermits themselves have lived within speaking distance for 35 years, and, as Darby puts it, We have never enjoyed a single spat. The reporter arrived at their home, called The Bat. Situated at the base of a towering cliff on the west of Grand Manan is The Bat, the novel abode of Darby Green. A few yards away is the dwelling of his brother Lucy. The Bat is a story and a half structure built of material collected from the bleak shores of the west coast of Grand Manan Island. Starting with the erection of a mere hut over three decades ago, the Hermit has built onto the main structure several additions of unique architectural design, which represented many years of toil on the part of the near-sighted builder, Darby Green. Over the doorway on the outside of the dwelling is fastened the original nameboard of a ship that was wrecked at Dark Harbor a third of a century ago called The Bat. The doorstep of the abode consists of several ancient hatches, which were salvaged from wrecks many years ago. The walls of the bat are decorated with a collection of every conceivable kind of bizarre photographs, which evidently appealed to the peculiar artistic tastes of Darby the Hermit. The rooms inside the bat include a room which is inaccessible for it has no windows or doors. 
one can enter only through the trap door of an upstairs chamber. Darby takes great pleasure in piloting the stranger up the insecure ladder to the upper room, where the eerie silence becomes oppressive as the trap door is silently removed. One is invited to peer into the apparent mysterious abode of spirits, for nothing of a material nature is discernible in the mysterious depths. A soft chuckle behind me causes me to turn quickly from the cavernous recess, just in time to catch the furtive expression on Darby's countenance, which seems anything but reassuring. The hermit bursts into shrill laughter, and the spell is broken. Darby hastily replaces the trapdoor and advises me to hurriedly retreat. Graham and Anne is a large and somewhat isolated island in the Bay of Fundy. Before the arrival of Europeans, the Pescamukadi and Woolastaquay people called it Manuncook, which means simply, the island. It was considered a safe place, and they brought their elderly people there in winter. It was also a sacred burial place. French explorer Samuel de Champlain was probably the first European explorer to set foot on the island. As I've said many times in different episodes, Samuel de Champlain was great at exploring, but terrible at spelling. It seems that he simply tried to give the island the same name as the Pescamukati called it, Manancook, but somehow garbled it into Manthani. He then also added grand to it, grand being, of course, a French word for big, so the island became Grand Manthani. The name of the island evolved and was later changed three separate times during Champlain's life by Champlain himself because of his own spelling mistakes. It went from Menanthi to Menasni to Menani and eventually settled on Menan. But it's a big island, so Grand Menan. After his rather questionable tour around the Dark Harbor Hermit's homemade house on Grand Menan, our intrepid reporter Chester Allen Dixon sets about trying to pin down just who these mysterious and evasive hermits really are as people. There is a sort of treasure island atmosphere about the building and its surroundings, and the hermits themselves could easily be mistaken for members of Long John Silver's crew. Louis, who went by Lucy, as the younger of the two, tall and straight, with a mass of long white natural curls falling over his shoulders, with piercing black eyes, ever searching one's very soul for signs of duplicity. The other brother, Darby, was quieter and the steadying influence. He could literally recite poetry by the yard, and his memory is never at fault when a reading match is on the docket. Lucy was described as the entertainer of the two and was also quite noted for his ability to make fine artistic carvings. His preferred canvas was the wooden stock of guns, and he would carve intricate and detailed woodwork onto them, with decorative metals set into highly polished wood with mechanical precision, without the aid of the lathe or other modern tools. He claimed to the reporter that he did all of his carvings with a rusty knife he found buried in Grand Manan, stuck in a human skull. He claimed that he was guided to the location of the knife in the skull when a Bible fell open to him, and he followed the clues on the page. After telling the reporter that story, he added what seems to be his trademark line. And that story is the unvarnished truth. The reporter jotted down a story Darby recounted, 
about meeting a pack of guests on the pathway to Dark Harbor on one moonlit night. It was a moonlit night and I was sauntering down the pathway in the uninhabited district. Suddenly four bearded men dressed in ancient homespun suits blocked the road. Each man carried a clothes bag on their back. These were fitted with rope drawing cords. They threw all of their burdens to the ground and their leader produced a chart before my astonished gaze. One of the four placed his finger on the chart and croaked, This is the place! I was standing within eight feet of the leader. Curiosity impelled me to step nearer. As I did so, the forms literally vanished from sight, much to my surprise and disappointment. And that story is the unvarnished truth. Neither me nor my brother has ever told an untruthful story. It isn't ever especially clear what exactly caused the Dark Harbor Hermits to live their lives in an isolated ramshackle home alone on the uninhabited side of Grand Manan. They grew up on the other side of Grand Manan Island, in the village of Castilla. In 1898, just a couple years before the brothers departed their little home village on the other side of the island to live as hermits, Castilla was a fishing and farming community with one post office, three stores, two sawmills, three churches, and a population of 300 people. Chester Allen Dixon did ask Darby about what caused them to leave their village of Castilla to live alone in Dark Harbor. He wrote that the mood became somber when he asked that question. Darby seemingly stared wistfully at a mental picture of a winsome lady from bygone days. The silence remained unbroken for several minutes. Then, in softened tones, the hermit whispered, I never married because I never thought I would be able to support a woman on account of my failing eyesight. And that is why I am the way I am. He flicked the ash off the end of an enormous homemade cigar and continued, Lucy and me gets along good together and we never had a quarrel in 35 odd years because we live in our own houses 30 yards apart and Lucy plays fair. The reporter inquires what the hermits do when they get sick. The hermits replied that they have never seen a doctor in their entire lives. Darby reasoned, Might as well die game as let a doctor come and get all you got. They gathered herbs with which they make their own medicines. Though by the time Chester Allen Dixon visited to write his profile on the hermits, their main income had been by far surpassed by entertaining American tourists. But nonetheless, he wrote that, Dolph's gathering has long been the lifetime occupation of the Dark Harbor Hermits. Dulce was, and remains even today, what Dark Harbor is known for. Because this podcast has an awful lot of listeners outside of the Maritimes, actually the vast majority of its listeners are now from outside of the Maritimes. Hello to everyone from across Canada, across the United States, and much to my surprise, the very dedicated fan base in Brazil. So I should explain what Dulce actually is, because Dulce is a very specific Maritimes food. Dulce is seaweed. It's this deep, dark, purple, little chip-sized bits of dried seaweed. Records of people eating dulce date back some 1400 years in Scotland and Ireland. Ancient Celtic warriors ate it while marching, while in the 17th century the British Navy fed it to sailors to prevent scurvy. 
In Ireland, dulce was baked into bread. Well, in Scotland, it was made into relish. In the Mediterranean, it was added to stews. And in the Maritimes of New England, dulce flakes were traditionally added to seafood chowder and seafood pies. So it's not actually necessarily obscure globally, but I haven't really heard of places that eat it straight by the handful out of the bag, quite like Maritimers still do. Dulce is now actually quite international, and it got a notable boost in popularity after the 2011 Fukushima nuclear disaster in Japan, because its high content of iodine is thought to mitigate the effects of nuclear radiation. And Grandman Aunt Dulce, specifically the Dulce from Dark Harbor, is considered the best Dulce in the world. This past summer, I myself actually went to Grandma Nan to go camping, and I found a little shed in the middle of nowhere on the island selling dulce. There was no one there. You just had to leave money for the bags of dulce in a little can. They had a selection of dulce types, these little brown paper bags filled with dulce lining the walls of the shed with that distinctive seaweedy smell of the salty ocean permeating the little shed. My personal favorite way of eating dulce is DLT sandwiches. You know BLTs, of course, bacon, lettuce, tomato sandwiches. So it's like that, but instead of bacon, you put dulce in it. You chop up the dulce quite fine, and then you fry it in oil for a minute so it becomes crispy, and then you eat it in a sandwich. It's a DLT, very specific regional food. Uh, if you didn't grow up with it, you might not necessarily be to your taste, but it's definitely very popular here in the Maritimes. The Dark Harbor Hermit Brothers harvested dulce for a living. In 1934, the Eastport Sentinel newspaper described dulce harvesting methods. It is gathered and spread upon the absolutely clean rocks of the sea wall. It is spread by a peculiar twist of the fingers so that the leaves do not lay flat on the rocks underneath and are not easily acquired. The dried dulce is spread like a large carpet and rolled the length of its side, say, 20 feet or more. Back in the 1920s in particular, New Brunswick had fashioned itself as something of a tourist hotspot for wealthy Americans who would come to visit in the summers. The Dark Harbor Hermits, selling their dulce, were something these Americans would come from far and wide to see. Chester Allen Dixon remarked on these visitors while writing his profile of the Dark Harbor Hermits. The Dark Harbor Anchorites are an interesting attraction for summer tourists. And just inside the doorway of Lucy's abode, long strips of cardboard are fastened to the wall, serving the purpose of a register. These bear the signatures of hundreds of visitors, including those of some of the world's notables. Darby and Lucy are well known to the members of the 400, New York's exclusive set, and to similar corridors of other United States cities. Just before he departed, the reporter asked the Dark Harbor Hermits to recite him a poem. Lucy stood up with arms folded in a Napoleonic style and recited in sepulchral tones which dovetailed nicely into prophetic incantations. There's many a coat that is tattered and torn, that beneath lies a true honest heart. But because he's not dressed like his neighbors in style, society keeps them apart. For on one fortune smiles, while the other one fails. Yes, no matter what venture he tries, 
Time calls them both to the grave in the end. And six feet of earth makes us all one size. That was Backyard History with your host, Andrew McLean. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for another hidden story that happened in your own backyard. Chester Allen Dixon, voiced by Nathaniel Brewer. Produced by Jordan Lozier.